and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two people who may or may not have their shit together compulsively learn history stories and then come forth once a week to verbally redistribute the information that we have casually compulsively learned upon the other one. We're I'm like Teresa. the Robin Hoods of information. The, the Robin Hoods of useless information that probably isn't even going to show up on Jeopardy. I'm counting on mine showing up on Jeopardy one day. Like, that's how I'm going to make it famous. The only way I'm going to have any claim to fame is it's really going to end up being like the Got Milk commercial. You know, like <laughs> the one from the, the 90s of like, who shot Alexander Hamilton? Caller five gets a million dollars. With the mouthful of peanut butter sandwich. Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't get to that milk fast enough. Yeah. I mean, that... That commercial lives rent-free in my brain. Do you know that commercial was actually directed by Michael Bay? No. <laughs> yes. I kid you not. Like That, that is, is hilarious. Yeah. I love it when we learn things that are totally, like, not, um, I, like, that's like, that's like saying um, the most recent progressive commercial was directed by Steven Spielberg. Was it? no oh, i'm just okay. saying like <laughs> like why would those things even be related you know what well, i mean because apparently michael bay was still like either a freshly graduated film student or still in but like you know on the cut like trying to build up his cv and <laughs> he got the opening and the hollywood blockbuster extraordinaire came up with that jim i mean I mean, he's not wrong. It is the Got Milk commercial everybody remembers. That yeah. one and Cindy Crawford with the milk mustache. Yeah, but I mean, she was for print media as he was for. So I know <laughs> off air, you and I both talked about how our stories are of decent lengths and mine may, is is long. Um, I want to hear your story. I'm like, when you mentioned that you had a long one and it made me think it was an absolute doozy. So I've been like... More excited to hear what you had to say than share what I had. <laughs> oh, damn. Okay. Well, all right. Um, I, I'm going to tell you a story of someone that I almost guarantee you don't know about. Oh, because so when I do things like look up podcasts about him, um, th there's not. Um, when I do things like search for short summations or biographies, um, Wikipedia is here for me. But that's about it. Uh, so I'm sorry. Is this cite your sources, Angie Day? Like no, 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 no. My sources are not a Reddit post. Ready for this? Yeah. The first book, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare by Giles Milton. The second book, Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare by Damian Lewis. They are two separate books, despite the. Common incredibly name. close titles uh the third book soe mastermind the authorized biography of major general sir colin gubbins kcmg dso mc by brian lett that is a lot of initials yeah isn't it holy beans uh-huh and then there is an article uh titled malcolm aiken or on the malcolm aiken military research website 
history is determined by those who write it. Colin Gubbins. Okay. I'm telling you right now, off the bat, the name doesn't ring a bell. Okay. I'm going to start with the description of Colin. Uh, He is a dapper little fellow who wore smooth suede gloves and had a silver-tipped cane. He was dark and short, his fingers square, his clothes were immaculate. He was fortunate to have the looks to match the attire. Slight and superbly built, beetling eyebrows, penetrating eyes, and a gravelly voice. Was he a cat? No. This is a dude. Like, allow me to actually share. Okay. He looks like he is straight out of a movie. His lapels are covered in medals and um, like rankings. He is. Mm-hmm. I would. Would you say high arches or slightly balding on top, perhaps? Yes. But like uh, in a in a very debonair kind of way. He is one of the few people that you can say pulls off male pattern baldness. Very very well. Um, he has. I'm trying to describe his mustache because it is somewhere between the mustache you expect and Hitler. <laughs> it is a cross between a handlebar and a pencil mustache. So it is a yeah. mustache that doesn't quite extend along the full breadth of the lip, the upper lip, um, but does have a slight upturn at the ends. It is and a quite full. Yeah, it is a very 1940s mustache. Mm-hmm. I love him. Okay. I'm, I, I'm not going to hate him by the end, am I? Because no, I currently you, you, love him. Yeah, um, these are these are good things for you to have. Okay. Um, so he, his eyes had a glint to betray the icy ruthlessness. He was a gentleman full of surprises with the energy of a terrier. <laughs> okay. So that's what we're starting with. And when he was introduced with that description in uh, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, I was like, go on. And um, you are? <laughs> you, you have my full attention. I can already oh, smell his aftershave. <laughs> okay. I love that we were both thinking the same thing because you're like, I could smell his aftershave. And I'm like, oh, Chante. <laughs> I know. Um, so Colin Govins, he has a background. He hails from more of an imperial background that included his great-grandfather, who was the governor of Newfoundland. He had a grandfather who had been in the Bengal Civil Service and had even been involved in the siege of Lucknow at the Indian Mutiny. So in kind of going forward with this, Colin himself was born in Tokyo. So he, and I mean, we're talking pre-World War I. So this was a very interesting thing for someone to have in their background as Westerner. His father was a diplomat, which is why he was there. And his mother's family had business concerns in the rapidly modernizing Japan. So, you know, he comes at it from both angles. Well, when he's young, for whatever reason, he's shipped back to Scotland. I don't really know the reasonings behind that, but he's raised by what is described as a clan of terrifying Scottish ants. I'm so excited. <laughs> and these these women, so first off, he you know, he comes from money, so he's sent to a very expansive manse, as it's called, that has very few amenities in the Scottish Highlands. The ants are credited with making him tough, resourceful, and independent. And one of his ants, she's viewed as the matriarch of the family, is said to have refused to allow Colin to sit in her presence because it encourages indolence. 
I love her. And it's, it's okay. She, for her, she's in her house. Toughness was a uniquely Scottish virtue. True story. Okay. Okay. So this is just adding on to the mystique of this man. 1913 Cubbins or Gubbins, my apologies, signs up for the Royal Military Academy. Here he's known for his recklessness. One peer wrote for Colin, it was neck or nothing, and he had a wild devil-may-care streak. I love him. He also graduated, I didn't get the whole number, but like very low in the class. Like he was not the leading scholar. This man was not the valedictorian. Okay. (laughs) Like the bottom... The bottom of the the normal end of the curve, you know what I mean? Okay, Where yeah. not quite, you know, he didn't he didn't pull up the trail into the entire bell curve, but the bottom of normal is where we would say he graduated. Is he related at all to the bagpiper who like piped his way into all of his battles? I have no he idea. Carried his sword because I just genuinely believe that he is. <laughs> I mean hold that thought right because you're gonna (laughs) you're not gonna think i mean there's gonna be some strong similarities so maybe cousin by the end of this um govins fought in world war one he was actually he saw his first bit of action at the second battle of eeps and that same battle francis pegamable from episode 44 he's also in that battle but francis was on the the canadian unit and then Guppins is is in the British. Um, so Guppins fights in World War. I love War. it when our stories tie together. I mean, I just like, wait a minute, Battle of Eves? And it's Eves is spelled Y-P-R-E-S. So, of course. You know, nobody spells it like they say it. Um, Thanks, France. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, he fights in Flanders and he earns a military cross by digging his comrades out of the dirt when half of his platoon is blown to, blown to bits. Ooh. Uh, at some point during the war, he gets gassed, shot in the neck, and develops trench fever and shivers his way through. And by the time he recovers, World War One is over. And so despite seeing enough action during World War One that would send everybody home with shell shock, he's not done fighting. Well, he's Scottish. You know what? Actually, that's a good parallel and good time to bring that in. Um he did have a natural connection with both his soldiers and was earmarked for an interesting post-war position in Russia, where at Russia at this point, they're being disintegrated into civil war, and this is the wake of the Russian Revolution. This was his first exposure to what is considered irregular warfare, you know, so basically not everybody lining up in a straight line. And the need for diplomacy in handling these complex alliance of disparate forces this plays you know he's playing with people who've got dubious loyalty and so he's really seeing and learning quite a bit he served as the adc to general ironside who himself was regarded of something of an unorthodox leader after his boeing war experiences the british commanders also saw the incredible effect of propaganda in undermining the willingness of soldiers to fight the psychological warfare was something of an interesting innovation that would be used extensively by both the communists and the fascists in the coming two decades for with the democracies had little use in its armory to defend against. So, I mean, like all of these things are just coming up and like building into what we're going to end up seeing. 
Um, then the idea of the fifth columnists and sympathizers at disrupting defenders' willingness to fight, and that would lodge itself very deeply into Colin Govan's mind. So all of this is going on and building into his brain and taking him to something that's pretty incredible. But there's a couple more ingredients that the British Empire has to build this man into who he's going to be. And they're actually found in both Ireland and India. So in Ireland, it's undergoing a series of serious upheavals in the wake of the post-war tensions um, over Ulster and Home Rule. The 1916 Easter Uprising and the increased nationalist awareness, which erupted into what was both low intensity, but also a very real war. Collins Gubbins, he spends three years in Ireland and could hardly have been trained better in unconventional war techniques. And it's at this point, he is talking about how he is being shot at from people in Trilby's and Macintosh's, and he's not allowed to shoot back because they fire at him from behind a hedge. They stand up, straighten up their gear and they walk off. And he hmm. knows who fired, but he can't do anything about it. One of the things he saw for himself was the role of smuggling arms and of using women as couriers or of assassination, intimidation, and sabotage as an instrument of war. Get so it, he's, ladies. He's looking at this and he's like, you know, we could we could do a lot with this. Listen, those aunties didn't raise no fool. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. He also witnesses lightning ambushes where the ambushers just melt away without a trace. And of course, the British are on receiving end of these tactics, but he never forgot the impact that it had or the willingness of the British soldiers and particularly the Irish police to continue to fight. So he's just watching them, this chip away at their morale, and he's like, if only we could use these tactics. The role of Irish women was particularly interesting when you think about how the SOE would later become the only British military formation that actively recruited, trained, and used women in combat roles throughout the entirety of World War II. That's a okay. little foreshadowing. I love so that he, for me. he understood that women were valuable resources, and even more so because they're going to be underestimated by their foes. It's about this time that Britain finally vacates Ireland, and it fell to Colin Gubbins to actually help the Irish supporters of the treaty deal to fight against the dissident Irish who regarded it as a sellout. Okay. And additionally, as an artillery officer, Gubbins provided the crucial artillery support to his former foes to help defend them from those who were unhappy with the treaty. So he's just getting it from both sides and just really go ahead. I have a question just yeah. to make sure I'm I'm following in the right direction. He is fighting for the UK. Yes. Against the Irish uprising and now he is working with those that want to remain part of the UK, correct? Yeah, they've already signed a treaty saying that right, you right. know, yeah, and the people who are staunchly opposed, he's still like, okay. you know, cajoling them kind of deal. I'm making sure I'm following the right track. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Um Ireland's not the only imperial training ground that Colin Guppins has access to. India's his next destination, and where it's thought here that his Russian experiences might help on the northwest frontier that still remains, or it's still remnants of what is called the Great Game. As it was, the Russian threat was something in abeyance due to its own power vacuum, because there's just a ton of issues going on with Russia in and of itself. 
And it's at this point that he's exposed to the civil disobedience tactics of the Quit India movement by Gandhi. Oh, okay. So, I mean, he's just Name kind dropping. of- I know, he's really playing the who's who of history bingo card. <laughs> I didn't have him for Tuesday. Nope. And it's under Gandhi that he is meets again this idea of non-collaboration- and sabotaging the authorities and how that could make a powerful impression. And at this point, he's still training to be a staff officer. So he's fairly low in the ranks. So we're going to fast all, all the way forward to 1939. And it's at this point that he's invited on a lunch with a friend of his named Joel Ho Joe Holland um, of a, a group called MIR, which is a very secretive group in the British uh, intel or military that very few people even know about. And then he's also having lunch with a dude named Lawrence Grand of Section D. Another, we don't know about this org. It doesn't exist on paper kind of place. Okay. And while he's having lunch with these two people, he's invited to lead what was called the left wing and fight an ungentlemanly war against the Nazis. And Govins accepts the role and asks where the office was. And it's at that point, his host stands up, goes to, because they're in a restaurant, goes to the wall and reveals a secret door that connected the restaurant to a hidden corridor to section D next door. Okay. I mean, could you is, imagine? Is he the, um, the inspiration for Bond? He's one of them. He, I knew it. I knew he had to be. Okay. He's too debonair to not be. Oh my gosh, he is one of them. At one point, him and his buddies pull, like they're working 16 hour days as the war goes on. And once I get there and they end up drinking all night till like three, four in the morning. And then the next morning, bright and early, Gubbins is back at his desk pulling another long day. And you're yeah. like, I'm sorry, what? But he has this whole idea of like work hard, play hard and embodies yeah. it. Live your truth, friend. So when he's at uh, Section D, he creates this the instruction manual about killing, maiming, and incapacitating the greatest number of people. And he has <laughs> difficulty creating this because there's no source material in libraries. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, he is a pioneer. So he starts looking to a number of orthodox figures to really help him come up with this material. Um, and he starts studying people like Al Capone. And Al Capone's use of Tommy guns and striking the enemy where they least expect it. And he starts to really think about his soldiers and who his soldiers are going to be and to think of themselves as gangsters who strike damage and escape. Okay. Other things that are included in his manual are strangling strangling sentries. <laughs> With like piano wire, poisoning water supplies with bacilli or bacilli, bacilli. That's what I'm looking for. And how to best ambush trains, including like derail them first and then pick off the people who survive as they leave the train. I wonder if you read about the great train escape. <laughs> very easily could have, right? Like this wouldn't surprise me. He seemed very keen on these types of topics um he also includes spots on like how to blow up factories and if you wanted to destroy nazi infrastructure how to do it and 
when he's doing all of this, he's realizing that he requires weapons that don't exist yet. Bat bombs. You know, you say that, but like <laughs> one of the people he brings on is this dude. I think Cecil Clark is the name of the dude. I can't know. It could have been Millis Jeffers. Um, so he brings in this dude named Millis Jeffers and or Jeffress and Jeffress like had been playing along, like playing in his basement, like with bomb making material like you do. And came <laughs> up Tuesday. Right. Know. He came up with like, oh, if if I use an aniseed ball, like which I guess was like a children's suite, it okay. dissolves at a specific rate. And that could be a very good timer for a fuse to make a bomb explode. Okay. And he also ended up using quite a bit of condoms in the creation of these bombs. Like, so okay. this guy was just a really smart and like his bombs were made for like less than six pounds. Oh, so they okay. were super cheap, very effective. And you're like, wait, what? Like, I like that it. is that is the level of, of human that this guy is attracting. Um, Govins goes on to recruit tons of people. Oh, let me go back. So the manual that he that he creates um, his secretary has it published on pocket-sized edible paper, and the manuals could be consumed in less than two minutes with a large glass of water. Okay, so don't let don't leak our ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do any of these manuals still remain? Do we know? That's a good question. I didn't look that up. I'm gonna have to Google it. Okay, carry on. Sorry, but I mean, like, I want to read one. <laughs> my whole thought was like, I thought all paper was technically edible. But I've never maybe tried. It was like flavored paper, rice mm. paper, maybe. You know, okay, that could be. You know, but I'm like, honestly, if you look at like a like the onion paper that like a Bible's written on, like that very yeah. thin. I'm like, I'm willing to bet. Like, I'm. I haven't tried to live off a diet of of Bible, but I'm pretty sure that that could. I mean, you won't be hungry, I guess. Yeah. I mean, okay, that's a weird, weird sidebar there. Okay, um, so Collins, when he's going out and recruiting people, he's really not going after military men. Um, he wants the rugby hardened men with vocation experience who come from places like oil rigs and places like that that have grit and need it to survive. So he's yeah. going around these gentlemen's clubs and recruiting people who played rugby at Eton and, you know, like all of the big, the big school names. Okay. To find his peeps. And one of his recruits is Peter Fleming, Ian Fleming's brother. Ah! I love it. Mm hmm. So when you said, is he inspiration for Bond? I was like, possibly. I mean, it just, it, it was too close of a year coincidence and and the initials and letters that you've dropped in the in the first portion it, there was no way he Ian Fleming couldn't have known yeah exactly they the book details or many the books detail many missions that Gubbins either orchestrated or went on one of them talked about one of the times that Gubbins and his agents went to Poland. And when they go to Poland, they're meeting Polish resistance and Polish intelligence. And 
one of his disguises and alternate identities is a person named Professor Sandwich, which doesn't seem like a name that you would use to blend in anywhere. But it's, but it's a great villain name, isn't it? <laughs> so as Professor Sandwich, so Gubbins hands a leather parcel to another agent and tells him that that package needs to get to London at all costs. And the agent opens up the packaging and says it contains this weird little machine that has lots of cogs. That package okay. contained the Enigma machine. Oh, okay. Um, conveniently, all the Professor Sandwich files are still not available to the public. That seems legitimate. And like, so, for good we, reason. Yeah, we still don't know all that Professor Sandwich accomplished. <laughs> but I'm just I, like, huh. I love the name. He could have picked anything, and that's what yeah. he went with. Like, <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of issues that Guppin's faces as he's trying to really move his agenda forward. And part of that is England as a whole doesn't want to deal with ungentlemanly warfare. Like there are articles in the paper talking about how a sword is the only weapon that is gentlemanly to use to kill your opponent. Not even a bayonet, a sword. Okay, well, it is the appropriately gentleman thing to do. This causes a lot of arguments between readership. And finally, the original poster has to respond with like, you know what? I just, I I cave. Apparently, a sword is very vicious too. So, you know. (laughs) You can only kill them with your looks. (laughs) Pretty much. Your debonair smile. Um, Kindness. Kindness, if you will, will kill them with kindness. Oh, and a thank you. A tersely (laughs) said thank you. I said good day, sir. Exactly. <laughs> um, at one point, Gubbins is interacting with General Garno, who is the head of Pol- Polish efforts, and he's seeking Gubbins to help him get more supplies for his group of guerrilla fighters. Um, Garno has been through it, right? He's been seized by the Gestapo. He's been in a prison camp. He's escaped, made his way overland to Paris, and wants to lead the efforts in Poland. So this is a guy who's in it to win it. Gubbins immediately promises help and contacts the war office in London. And London is just like, well, we only have two transmitters in all of England, and they're not going to be available until spring. And we have no automatic guns available at all, um, but you can have some really small revo- revolvers. I, we know they're not appropriate for this type of fight, but that that's what we can give you. Garno looks at this and is like, there's no way that that's the truth. They're saying it because they're unwilling rather than an inability to fight and help. Okay. Like, so where's our, where's our bomb making friend? He's in the process of like developing things, right? Like he's doing all kinds of stuff. I don't really mention a lot of Millis Jeffers here, but because that dude, what a, what an incredible thing, but you'll, some of it will kind of be mentioned in the background, but just hold all of that in your noodle noggin. Um, Okay. <laughs> Garno is right in that because their request was blocked by the Secret Intelligence Service, and they thought that guerrilla warfare as a whole risked their undercover agents, and they felt that Gubbins and his group were a bunch of undercover thugs, and he they just didn't want to help at all. Mm, okay. The Secret Intelligence want to put Gubbins and his team out of commission 
And it it takes a lot of support from Winston Churchill specifically to protect this group. And after gobs of crazy bureaucracy of things like this and refusing to help and not offering air support, like not flying supplies that they have because, oh, we just can't spare the planes. Churchill gets so upset that he greenlights and this entire idea to create what he calls the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. And it ends up getting the special name or the name Special Operations Executive. The SOE. The SOE. And it's under the SOE that we have the original group, the MIR, and Section D. And Section D stand stood for um, Section Destruction. I was going to say, is it Section Demolition? Because it pretty that feels much. right. <laughs> and all of those roll up underneath uh, the SOE. And Churchill stresses that even the members of the cabinet were not to be informed of its day-to-day activities. Because they they don't like it anyhow. So we're just not going to tell you anything. Yeah, less you know, the better. Right? Um, Govins is offered a post as the director of operations and training at the Baker Street office. And he hires back, because at this point, he's kind of ventured around various groups within the British military. And he ends up hiring most of the people who worked for him at Section D up under his team specifically. And they go to the sixth, there's a big office for SOE that's like six floors, about a block big, and it's just massive. So it is not a small group. And Gubbins decides that he's going to start actively hiring women for a variety of tasks. Dad, boy, come on, son. And then he believes like for him, the registrar's office is the nerve center of his operations. They're in control of all of the records. And he believes that women are more trustworthy than men and should only be the ones hired for these roles. I love that for us. I mean, it's just incredible. But another fun fact to just put away in the back of your brain, this mindset meant that he's not well-liked in the war office. Right, because man. Exactly. So here's the thing, though. I mean, he's not wrong, right? Because nine out of 10 times, maybe eight out of 10 times, these guys get off work. They go down to the bar. They drink a little too much and they open their mouth. Yeah. Women do not. Like, historically speaking, that is not something that happens. Well, I mean, and look, even then, let's let's assume that women do have loose lips as well. We're not going to be welcomed at the same bar that the men are at that are being listened to. Right. Like, we just can chat amongst ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. We're not going to go, you know, buy around drinks on the house. We're going to end up being like going home being like, girl, maybe <laughs> don't buy eggs this week because I eggs. heard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just so. Saying. One of the crazy missions that I wanted, because I could just end up regurgitating these books back to you, but like I decided to come up with, you know, some of the more harrowing ones. The one, there's an electric power plant in France at Pesic that's close to Bordeaux that, oh my God, the entire mission is just insane. They viewed this power plant as too, 
too strategically valuable to leave in the hands of the VC, the Vichy government. It's ah! got, I mean, basically, I wonder, go ahead. I wonder if you ever, ever had any dealings with Nancy Wake. You know, Gubbins had so many uh, people underneath him that he actually, I mean, I don't know how much interaction he had with the, the you know, spies specifically. I, I don't know if he would have because he purposefully had different training groups for each region so that if you were going to France, you would not train with someone going to Norway because yeah, no. if you were caught in Norway, you shouldn't have information on them. You shouldn't even know what they look like or who they are. I mean, that makes sense. But I was just thinking Nancy Wake specifically because she was a French resistance fighter dealing right. with the Vichy government and like a skill set of specifically like power plants and um, causing chaos and things like that. Her name didn't come up and I feel like it would have. I'm thinking it would have too, but it also, like you said, could have been one of those things like you can't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. True. So they could have like crossed paths and never even known it. <laughs> Very easily. But I love that you brought her up because I, I I knew that we'd covered her, but I didn't put her in here. Um, the power plant specifically at Pesic provided the energy for the chemical manufacturers in the Bordeaux area that's now in the hands of the Nazis. And it was also the power plant that provided all the electricity for the Nazi submarine base outside of Bordeaux. Oh. So if they could knock out this power station, they would cripple the U-boat's advantage in the entire Atlantic Ocean. That's impressive. Yeah. And I'll take it. As they're doing all their reconnaissance on this, they realize they can't do an aerial, aerial bombing because there's a lot of fears of hitting civilian homes. But they could airdrop saboteurs. Now, the power plant, as they understand it, has a 16-foot perimeter fence that's topped with barbed wire and a 24-hour guard. And to accomplish this mission, Gubbins knows he needs French saboteurs. And so he goes to one of his employees, Cecil Clark, and Cecil creates a two-month training program designed to teach the saboteurs how to destroy the target and get out alive. He's got three volunteers that arrive for training in the spring of 1941. And if done correctly, Clark and Gubbins believe that Pesic could be offline for at least six months. Wow. Okay. And as they're going through all this training, there's 12 miles away from the training facility is this place called Luton Power Station. It's got a high perimeter wall. It's guarded by military and has centuries at night with transformers that are similar to Pesic. And Gubbins believes that his volunteers are going to need experience to get this to work well. And he's looking at this and he's like, I bet, I bet we could use our own power station as some good experience for the men. And so he ends up um, under the guise of training. He takes the three volunteers and he forges a document giving him permission to expect the plant. And he takes a box of these limpet mines. The limpet mines are the mines that were created with like aniseed balls and condoms and a, a bunch of whatnot. Um, so then he hides in like some bushes with his son and his volunteers take scaling ladders to get over the fence. They sneak into the building. They attach the limpet mines to the transformers and they escape without triggering an alarm. Good on him. It's at that point that Clark announces his 
sorry, it was Clark and his son, not Gubbins. Um, Clark announces his intention to expect, inspect the plant. And <laughs> I mean, he comes to those forged papers and the manager running the plant at night is like, oh crap, I can't, I don't, I really don't want to do this, but I can't say no, because that looks like an official document. And they go all the way past the night patrol and that night patrol actually accompany him on this inspection. And they've got this flashlight and, you know, they're looking everywhere and Clark goes, Hey, what's that on the transformer? And the night guard goes, Oh God, that looks like a bomb. And he goes, Oh, what's that over there? Oh no. Oh, that looks like (laughs) another bomb. And what's that over there? You know? And he goes, you know, basically my men did this for you to show you how easy it was. These are all dummy. They're all fake. They're not going to detonate. Um, but how about this? I'm not going to tell on you guys not doing your job. If you don't tell that I came, we're just going to keep it conveniently up, but you guys have learned your lesson. You're going to keep this under stronger lock and key, right? You're going to actually do your jobs. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's so- the best, like using the, using the villains, the, for good, you know, Mm-hmm. Like, um, what is that? To leverage. Like when we hire the counterfeiter to find counterfeit. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So it's at this point that the French volunteers are airdropped during a full moon. And once they get to the power station, they realize that it only had a nine foot fence, which seems like good news, but it's topped with something called high tension wire that made scaling that virtually impossible. Um, but they end up doing a bunch of reconnaissance on their own. They learn that the German guards are complacent in their duty and that they have a habit of leaving work before midnight and just going to bed and leaving the main building unguarded. Oh, okay. And the night of the attack, one member scales the wall and he crept towards the main gate and lets in the rest of the team. And they just walk through the main gate. (laughs) The main building is unlocked. And within seconds, they've attached the mines onto the transformers. And within 30 minutes, they've accomplished the entire mission and they've snuck out. And as they're leaving on their bicycles that had been stashed in the woods, the bombs detonated and six out of eight of the transformers were crippled. Nice. The whole facility is offline for a year. That's beautiful. And it's about this time that, you know, it's about 1943 at this point, Collins Gubbins' boss submits his resignation and the boss just basically wasn't well received. He was viewed, he was called a gentleman among professionals. Okay. Which basically meant that the professionals were not the one in charge, even though he was, you know, of the right social class or, or whatnot. And there only seems to be one real replacement for his boss, and Churchill appoints Govins to the role and gives him the title CD. Any want to take a stab at what CD stands for? Counselor of Destruction. Very, very close. Chief of Destruction. Okay. Okay. And so Govins does a tour of all of his satellite offices, and he even meets a dude named Bill Donovan. Bill Donovan is one that joined the SOE and went under Gubbins' training, and he's an American, and he would be the one who starts the CIA. Oh, the plot thickens. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 
when I'm dropping names, I just, you know, wanted to make sure I threw that one out there. And so Gubbins, he, he goes through his, you know, more missions, more things, and he gets a series of favorable reviews, even one from General Eisenhower for specifically calling out Gubbins' contributions to the war effort. Good on him. It's at this point, we're at the end of the war. Churchill loses the election, removing the protective covering that MD-1 had had previously. All enemies against the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, they, they start coming out of the woodwork. Churchill gathered an example of all the unique weapons that his group had created in hopes to have them displayed. They okay. never were. Uh, the new foreign secretary wrote Gubbins a letter thanking him profusely for his service. And then the P Labor Party set out to dismantle the organization with the same level of secrecy that it was created with. Hmm. Okay. The staff was dismissed and all the buildings that had been commandeered for its use were now put back in civilian use. Okay. In Gubbins' career, he crippled 19 Nazi-ran factories, putting them completely out of action with the same amount of explosives that were carried by one light bomber. And that was only one small part of the work that Gubbins did. Good grief. When the SOE shut down in 1946, the war offer the war office could offer Gubbins no suitable position. And when he retired from the army, he became the managing director of a carpet and textile manufacturer. He remained in touch with a ton of people that he'd worked with in many of the countries that he'd helped liberate. And at one point was invited by Prince Bernard of the Netherlands to join the Bilderberg group. He was also a supporter of the special forces club that he'd co-founded. I'm I'm sorry. I'm still trying to get myself wrapped around the fact that like there's no good job, so he just becomes a carpet salesman. But I mean, imagine, right? You spend the entire war pulling together this whole host of information that is unique to you. You've got a special set of skills. Yeah. He's Liam Neeson. Exactly. And then once the war ends, what do you what do you do with that? You wrote the manual on how to strangle good. people with piano wire. Well, if they were smart, the higher ups would keep him on, you know, retainer, as it were. But the problem <laughs> is the wrong higher ups didn't survive the election and everybody who hated him closed ranks. Yeah, that that makes sense. Like all the times I was like, put that in your noodle, put that in your noodle, put that in your noodle. Like it was because like once you get there, you're like damn it oh poor guy but that is the story of colin gubbins he's my hero yeah yeah and right. one of his dudes that worked underneath him was a danish man named anders lassen and anders lassen had like a ton of missions that he did a small problem with anders lassen is all of his post-mission reports, you know, they're supposed to be detailed accounts of everything. Most of his reports were five words long. <laughs> I blew up building. <laughs> Landed. Accomplished mission. Fucked off. <laughs> That's all you need to know. I mean, 
that was actually <laughs> when people like pushed back when his superiors like you know said we need more detail he's like what else is there you gave me the mission i accomplished the mission yeah i left <laughs> yeah the rest is bureaucracy as far as i'm concerned i love that Sussent. the least words as possible yeah that's beautiful oh my goodness yep i'm i'm glad i'm glad you told your story first <laughs> yeah but that was one of those stories that i was just like oh my god like just nuts and to know that he wasn't even leading the spy network he was just leading the guerrilla warfare yeah that's wild and how how involved like I guess you don't really think about when you th when you think of war like you just you see the um like the front of it you know what I mean mm -hmm. does that make sense and just how how much Churchill was um very aware of what was going on and Church not only efforts. Churchill was aware of what was going on Lord Mountbatten actually had a couple you know basically who would be lizzie two's consort he had you know firsthand intel on a lot of these missions and That's... was thrilled well yeah oh I mean, my gosh just because you're like wait i'm sorry what what could you what <laughs> could you say that again yeah could you come for tea mm -hmm. oh, makes me wonder what miss lizzie knew i mean at the time I would I I don't know. I really don't know because at the time she was what, a mechanic? Mm, yes, she wasn't mechanic, in line for the throne. Well, I mean to say what she knew afterwards, right? Like how many heads of state and different meetings did she sit in, closed door or otherwise, that like she took that information to her grave? Oh, yeah, no, what she knew a ton. Did she know? And I just want to go back and say, I really have said she wasn't aligned for the throne. At that time, she was, wasn't she? Yes, she was, because Duke of Windsor abandoned the throne prior yeah. to the, the launch of the war. So she was already, like, next in line. Right. Didn't she, And she was coordinated in 52? Yeah, because her dad did. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was making sure I got my year right. I think it's 52. You know, you know better than I do. <laughs> I just love the queen so much. <laughs> I know. But yeah, no, I was super thrilled to do that research. It was one of those, that was a book that was kind of recommended. Well, okay. One of the books that was titled The Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare was recommended by someone I'm connected with on on TikTok. And when I went to look it up, I couldn't remember if they had said Churchill's ministry or just the ministry. And then I couldn't, like they didn't give an author. And so I just did both of them. And they both tell very different stories. Like one of them tells the story of basically Gubbins as the primary figure. And the other tells the story of Lassen as the primary figure. Okay. And holy cow just nuts yeah. the things that you think you know that you realize happened and it's crazy to think like i know i was kind of giggling at it earlier but like these people did these things that are just unhinged and wild and then they go back home and live you know like their normal lives and yeah and you could if they didn't say anything you could go 
the rest of your life without ever knowing. Like Gubbins becomes a carpet salesman. You know what I mean? Like, wait, what? Yeah. Really? <laughs> like, do you could do that's that's what you chose, huh? I mean, maybe self-defense classes weren't as popular, but I feel like I would love to learn the very, I mean, if anyone's going to teach it, I feel like he could be the one to really give you some firsthand knowledge. Some pointers? Right. I'm like, no, because your body is so much smaller than a man's, you're going to need to use this to brace yourself. You're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Thank you. I had to deal with a linebacker kind of sized dude up in eeps and you're like wait i'm sorry what it's kind of like the quote of of christopher lee you know talking about the noiseless gurgles that someone makes oh yes and you're just like oh my gosh uh, no but you're a wizard (laughs) yeah um i i'm gonna go cry in my trailer now thanks goodbye (laughs) i've got to go to the craft table and eat my feelings i'll be back do you want a parfait? Mm. <laughs> Could you imagine asking a man like that if he wanted a parfait? I mean, at one point in um the in the book or in one of the books, they talk about how they were having pink gin cocktails. Oh, okay. And I am so like I I look at this and realize that, you know, while Gubbins was, you know, very progressive in the sense of employing women, I just assumed very strict gender roles and very, like, a lot of toxic toxic masculinity. And so to hear that they were drinking pink drinks, I was like, huh, cool. I, it's been called out. I just didn't think that y'all drink pink. I would think, though, I mean, knowing that he had those aunties that raised him, he probably had a real, um, real regard and a real respect for for the the feminine gender already. But he saw how tough those broads were. So I'm certain that he was like, no, okay, listen, it's like, oh, who was it that was like my Scottish my Scottish maid could do this math better than you can. Oh, it was a um astronomer and yeah. he hires this scottish maid and she indeed mops the floor with his former assistant yeah i can't remember his name but like t- i guess it just always makes me laugh because there's so much you see in specifically in history about how like the toxic masculinity but then you hear these stories and you're like yeah no they they mama raised him right yeah <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I, I want to know more about Gubbins because it's like, what happened to his mom? I mean, obviously his mom is mentioned in passing, but like, what? why was he sent to Scotland? You know, why were his aunts in charge? Like, yeah. Maybe that's how his dad was raised. And so he was like, they'll do you good. Right? You just need to not sit in auntie's presence. Ever. No, ever. <laughs> and like, they didn't believe in games or frivolity. And if it's like, if you wanted to do something or anything, go stock the larder because all we've got is salted fish and gruel. But, you know, hey, you want to go shoot a stag? Go shoot a stag. We'll eat that. Sounds great. Yeah. It, that or you, be happy with your fish paste or whatever it was. <laughs> gross. That's so gross. You say that, but I, I mean, honestly... 
there's many things I've eaten in Japan that were incredible that, you know, you translate the name and you're all, hmm. I don't, I don't really know. It looks great. But once you tell me what it is, I'm, I'm suddenly suspect. Yeah, no, I'm never a king of it looks great. What is it? I'm always like, hmm, what is that before I decide if it looks great? <laughs> I mean, I I learned very quickly that it's just down the hatch. Oh, that was delicious. What was that? And then you go, oh, okay. All right. Check that off the list. I mean, because look at yogurt. Translate yogurt. Yo. Cur curdled milk. Yeah. Tell someone that you're going to feed them curdled milk. Go go outside to your children and be like, you got curdled milk with strawberries. <laughs> Gross. They're they're not going to eat it. I got yogurt. As long as they don't know what yogurt it. Well, they, they eat yogurt and they're like, yogurt's good. And then they learn, oh, it's cultured and then fermented. You're like, okay, that's cheese too. Yeah, we're not going to say any of those things to my children because... One of them um, is a cheese connoisseur, and the other one is already very dramatic about what he eats. All right. I mean, I'm just saying, like, maybe translation doesn't help, because when you translate foods that they like, they're like, I, I don't know. Like, Yeah, I watch don't want to make them dislike any of the things that they eat already, you know? Watch how chicken nuggets made at McDonald's. You'll nope. either never eat them Thank again, you. or you'll you'll abandon the argument that, you know, you should ask what it is before you eat it. Yeah. There's that. <laughs> I mean, my whole thing is like, is it going to hurt me? Am I allergic to it? No. And even then, how bad could it hurt me? Is it worth it? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. I love it. I love, but all, him. I love him. All that to be like, that's, that's Gubbins. And let me actually like Google search. Because he's got some real incredible... Colin Gubbins. Um, he's got some real incredible uh, images. Like the one of him is, there's an image I found of him as a young man that is just like, whoa. Oh, he's quite dapper. But I mean, there he, as a younger man, you know, you have that mustache. There's no upturn at the end, but it goes the full width of his, his um, upper lip. Yeah. But he looks very, very slight, very, very thin built. In fact, yes. Um, can I see the next picture in in row? Okay, that yeah, that one. But that's him and his kilt. <laughs> Look at and, all those medals. Yeah, but he's got the comb over. Yeah, he does, as is proper of his station. <laughs> but there he's labeled former chief of SOE. That's fantastic. And oh. I should say that his first marriage didn't do well. Towards towards the end of, of the war, his eldest son dies in action. And mm. it it within a couple of months, him and his wife divorce. But he ends up getting remarried. And I don't know if that, that's late wife or or first wife or second wife, but apparently second wife and him got along quite well. Oh, okay. Maybe second, just because of the lightness of his eyebrows there. Mm -hmm. But there we have, you know, not as many medals on the chest. So, and then there he is towards the end of his career with. Look at those eyebrows. Those are yeah. some stately eyebrows. 
I mean, <laughs> going back to the original topic when I interviewed when I introduced him, it was beetling eyebrows, which was not a term I would ever conjure myself. So I was grateful somebody else introduced me to it. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. But I yeah. love it. Thank you for that. My pleasure. How fun. If you want to contribute to any of the stories that we've covered, or you want to introduce a story, or you're thinking, good grief, Teresa, you actually got it wrong. You didn't say blank, or you missaid whatever. Let me know. Uh, Unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. And on that note, goodbye. Bye.